Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Luke. Return, Gospel of Luke. And, uh, whoa, hello. You know, one of the things that I love about science and studying science and looking at things scientifically is you see the hand of God in science, don't you? And the more you study science, the more you see God's hand, the more worship you get to give to God. One of the things that God has done is He's created this world with certain physical principles that go on, right? And these principles are are true in the sense of all the laws of thermodynamics and things. You can see God. So for example, metal, when it is cold is in a certain state, and then when it's raining, and you're, let's say, in a metal building, and the the metal building's beginning to warm up, what happens? It starts to creak. Now, if you stop and listen, you will hear the hand of God in the physics going on in this building. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is that as you're sitting there, you might hear crackle, crackle, crackle going on. Those are sounds of worship. So you don't need to be distracted by them. You can actually just say, thank God for the physics of metal expanding and contracting and all those things that are going on. It's not dangerous sounds. It's not leaking water. It's just, can you hear it? It's just a metal building that's changing because it's warming up outside. So we can worship God. So that's just kind of part of the worship chorus going on here this morning. And now you can set it out of your brain and you can focus in on the Gospel of Luke. Because that's where we're studying this morning. Luke chapter 12, as we continue our study of this great gospel, and we'll be looking at the passages John read, but let's just open in a word of prayer here this morning. Father, I thank you for your incredible, glorious hand in all aspects of life. I thank you that we get to gather as your people and worship you, and I pray now that as we do, that our focus would be on your word, that we would just truly be engrossed by all that You have done for us. And Lord, as this passage challenges our hearts this morning, may we respond to the move and the leading of Your Spirit that we might be conformed to the image of Your Son. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in the first couple hundred years of the church, many of the the theologians of that time were given a name uh, just later, we gave them the name. We called them the, the apologists. And then from about the year 100 to, let's just say, the year 300, these, uh, these men had an incredible job. They were trying to explain to the Roman government Christianity. The Roman government was threatened by the Christians. They, they were afraid that, that Christianity was going to undo the Roman Empire. And so they persecuted the Christians. And there were brave, brave men who stood up at that time and put their life on the line and wrote letters and tracts to different Roman officials to tell them, listen, don't be afraid of us. Don't be scared of us. We're not as crazy and we're not as dangerous as as you think uh, we are. And so these, these people put their life on the line. Some of them were killed for these letters that they wrote. The government officials rejected them and said, we don't like what you're saying and and tortured them and killed them. But there's one particular letter that I was reading through this week. We don't know who wrote it, but it was a letter written to a man by the name of Diognatius. Diognatius was the philosopher advisor to Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the Roman emperors. 
Diognatius had a curiosity about Christianity. Couldn't figure it out. He couldn't understand kind of how they were structured because they, they rejected the polytheism of, of, of the Greek system. But they also uh, said that, that, that they weren't going to get stuck in some of the, the ritualisms of Judaism. And so they were trying to figure it out. And so this author, who we don't know who wrote the letter, writes a letter to Diognatius and says, listen, I know you have questions about Christians, and I want to explain to you Christianity. I want to put it out there so that you'll understand who we are. And he says in his letter, in his opening of his letter, I hope I don't regret writing this letter to you. That's a subtle way of saying, I hope you don't kill me as a result of this letter. Because he was putting it out there for this guy. But in the letter to Diognatius, the author says, there's something very unique about Christians. There's something unique about us. And, and this distinction, if you can understand this distinction, you'll understand our values. He said, on the one hand, we're different from you in that we don't believe that our body should be handled in an immoral manner. That if it feels good, do it. We don't hold to that. We hold high the marriage bed. We hold high fidelity. We hold high and we hold sacred intimacy. We, it's not just something we give away loosely. But on the other hand, we do give away all our possessions loosely. Now that's different from a pagan culture, different from our culture, right? People will go on a daytime talk show and put out all of their immorality for the whole world to see, but ask them how much they earn, right? Ask them how much they earn. No way, don't you dare talk about my finances. That's me, that's private. And so you see, the, the pagan cultures, the, the money's held tightly, their body's held loosely. And he's saying Christians are different. We hold our bodies and the relationships we have as sacred, but our possessions we hold loosely. He said, now if you can catch that, you'll understand something about the values of Christianity. You see, we, here's the difference. We live in the world, but we don't live for the world. We live in it, but we don't live for it. And when we live for the world, what happens? Then pleasure and consumerism takes us over. We live for pleasure, we live for consumerism. Right? So, so suddenly we want to get all the pleasure we can, we want to get all the wealth we can, and that's what we're living for. So we hoard our wealth and we give away our, our bodies. And what he's saying is the Christians are different. There's a different kingdom we live for. Totally different kingdom. And our values are different and our heart is different. Because you see, Christians, we live in this world, but we don't live for it. Now the reason why I'm talking about this is because this section, as John read it, I'm sure you could see what he's getting at. This moment in, in, in the ministry of Jesus, this issue comes up. What are you living for? Jesus is, remember, He's just confronted the Pharisees. He's called them hypocrites and, and He's just gone to town on them. And then these crowds of thousands of people are pressing in on Him. He's giving a, a moment of instructions to His disciples about how to remain faithful. And in the midst of this, this guy jumps up and asks him a question. And the question deals with possessions. It deals with this world. It deals with the security of this world. And Jesus takes this moment to address His disciples and to tell them something very simple. Jesus, he's basically He's going to say this, I am not a means to an end for you to place your faith in this world. 
I'm not a means to an end so that you can gather up wealth and possessions and trust in that. The reality is that Jesus is the end of the search. He's not a means to an end. Jesus will never be a means so that you can live for the world. Jesus is always the end so that we do live in the world, but we live for Him and His kingdom. And so Jesus is going to take this time and instruct His disciples on this. And He's going to really show them the importance of this. And I think it's really valuable that we take time to, to unpack this this morning. In fact, I was originally going to go from chapter, or verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter, but I wanted to slow down a little bit so we could really see what the problem is. And then next week, Lord willing, really get into the solution of the problem in greater detail. But you'll see in your bulletin the way that I've structured it. I'm just kind of trying to follow the flow of the story. There's a perceived problem, but then Jesus identifies what the real problem is, and then He addresses it. And we're going to follow that flow. But I want you to see something very simple today. I want you to catch the point that we live in this world. We don't live for this world. And therefore, Jesus is not a means to an end for you to live for the world. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the end of our search. And in Him, we're able to live in this world, but for Him. And I want you to catch this today. Let's do it by looking at the first, the perceived problem. Look at verse 13 with me again. Someone in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So you got to picture the context. There's thousands of people pressing in on Jesus. Jesus is trying to have a training session with His disciples. And in the course of all this pressure that's coming down and, and Jesus having this conversation with the disciple, this guy jumps up, and the, you know, I'm just picturing this, this guy jumping up and saying, listen, Jesus, tell my brother I need the money. Okay, solve this problem for me. Now, let's not throw this guy under the bus too quickly. Let's look at his problem. Okay, because, you, because of the way Jesus responds, it's easy to say, boy, what a loser. <laughs> I would have never asked Jesus that question. Okay, so, so before we go there, let's just look at what his problem is so we can, we can see that, yes, we, we would and we probably have asked Jesus similar questions. Okay, so let's, let's look at his problem. Here's his problem. It's hard for us to, to catch it because we live in a very individualistic culture. So we don't always see his problem. You see, our culture is this. We tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be. Right? Just get a good education and go be what you want. And so our culture acknowledges the fact that, that, you know, Andrew might not be a pastor. He could go off and do whatever he wants. And we're used to that. Just go do what you want. In that culture, a man especially was tied to his father. What his father did, he did. Now in a family, let's just say you have a family with three boys. When the father dies, the, the business, whatever it was that the father did for a living, the, the ownership of that went to the oldest son then the oldest son was to distribute portions of the business to his brothers so that his brothers would have a job. Now, if the oldest son took the money, took all the, 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 the business, and said, I'm not giving it to you, what do you have? You've got nothing. You have no means of employment. You have nothing. So, what are you going to do? The best bet you have is to become a slave to someone. It's going to be your only option. So this guy's got a very real problem, doesn't he? His brother is refusing to give him the inheritance, refusing to give him what he needs to live, and so he needs it because he wants to survive. He's got to provide for his family. 
So he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, tell my brother to give me the money. Give me the inheritance. To give me the possessions. It's not just cash. I need it. I need the job. Now that's his perceived problem. Now the question is, is that the real problem? It's not the real problem. So now let's look at the real problem revealed. So a perceived problem, the guy is losing everything. He's perceiving that he's losing everything. Because he's not getting the inheritance, he has nothing. Now you could see how that could be perceived that way, right? If I took away your job and everything you owned, your perception would be you've lost everything. Now in the economy of God, have you lost everything? Right answer to that question is no. You haven't lost everything. And you'll see why. Okay? And this is what you have to catch. This is where, where Jesus is going to drill down into the problem here. Notice how Jesus reveals the problem. Verse 14. But He said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Now, of course, you read that. The first time I read that, I thought, wow, that's pretty brutal. <laughs> that was my first thought. My second thought was, well, I thought God made him judge, right? I mean, you think, wait a minute. Don't, don't, is this a fair question? Can't this guy ask this question? I mean, there's two things I know about Jesus. One is he's judge over the whole world. I know that about him. And two, we just learned last week that God cares for us. He cares for worthless birds. He's going to definitely care for us. So if Jesus is the judge, and God does care for us, you would think a guy who's losing everything could go to Jesus for help. Right? So why does Jesus answer this way? Very tempting to close in prayer here and move on to next week, right? No. Why does he answer this way? What makes him answer this way? Well, let me, let me kind of tell you what I think the issue is. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it to you, then I'll show it to you as the text unfolds. Jesus did not come to the world to answer prayer requests that would make you trust in this world more. Right? Jesus did not come to grant requests to make you place your faith in this world more. So if your faith is in this world, and you're coming, and something's shaking your faith in this world, is Jesus going to say, oh, he's losing faith in the world. We better help so that he can have more faith in the world again. Right? Well, that would be counterproductive to Jesus, right? His whole goal is to get you to have faith in him. So this man has come asking for Jesus to be the wrong kind of judge. Jesus did not come to be this kind of judge. In fact, this is how I would paraphrase my answer in the Steve Leston Bible, and this is why there is no such thing as the Steve Leston Bible, because of these dumb statements I'm about to make. But this is how I would paraphrase it. Why do you think I'm in charge of solving this problem for you? That's what I think Jesus is saying to him. Why do you think I'm in charge of this problem? Your problem is, is that you've lost everything in this world and you want everything in this world back. Why would I give that to you? 
I didn't come to give you the world. I'm not that kind of judge. You've misunderstood. You see, the reality is this. If I had large sums of money, if I had, every, you know, if I had just billions of dollars and all kinds of houses and stuff, and suddenly the market crashes and I have nothing, the wrong prayer request is to say, oh my, my future's destroyed. My kids will never go to college. I'll never be able to live. Jesus, you've got to give it all back to me. That'd be the wrong prayer. The right prayer is, God, you're my provider. You're my provider. The stuff isn't my provider. My dad's inheritance isn't the provider. The money in the bank isn't the provider. I'm not living for this world. If it comes, it comes. If it goes, it goes. If I live, great. If I die, great. I'm not bound to this world. And so Jesus did not come to be the errand boy for our flesh. Yeah, amen. Instead, His goal is to bring us into alignment with what God's doing in the world. Everything that God is doing is designed to bring you into alignment with what God's doing in the world, not to bring your flesh. So He says, I'm not going to answer that prayer request. Why am I this kind of judge in your life? I'm not designed this way. You know, when the whole Y2 scare happened. We were living in Alaska at that point. It was fun to watch that whole thing from Alaska because no one in Alaska was freaked out about the computers crashing. No one was worried about it. There was never a question. There was never anything. No one was concerned one bit. And it was fun to be up there and watching everybody down in the lower 48 freak out over this thing. And I remember listening to radio programs where it it kind of grieved my heart a little bit because some of the radio programs I would listen to before the Y2K scare were all talking about the year 2000 and the AD 2000 movement, which was to send as many missionaries as they could to the 1040 window so that we could start reaching out to the unreached people and and all this stuff. And then suddenly when they realized, we might lose all of our excess, we got to stop talking about missions and we got to start talking about what are we going to do with our money? And all these radio programs stopped talking about preaching the gospel. I started talking about what to do and what will happen with the computers. Where's the safest place to put it? And you could buy a generator for a love gift to our ministry. We'll give you a generator. So when everything crashes, you'll cut power. Right? And what happened? It was like money scared us. We were going to lose stuff. And it was interesting to watch it go on and all the paranoia that happened down here. And I think suddenly what happens is it touches. Moments like that touch the fact that we might be living more for this world and less in this world than we realize. When our dreams and our desires get touched and suddenly we're not getting what we want, it's amazing how it reveals that heart. And Jesus is saying, I'm not that kind of judge. So, now He's going to address the problem. Let's look at the real problem. Address. Let's see how He does this. Notice verse 15. It says, and he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of its possessions. Now, verse 15 is the key. It's a key verse right there. This is the main teaching point of Jesus. Notice he's addressing the disciples. So the guy comes up and throws the question, but the them is the disciples because that's who he's been talking to. And so he says to them, I'm sure the guy heard it. But he's saying, guys, this guy's question is going to reveal something to you. 
And I want you to be on guard. Now notice, take care and be on your guard. So two warnings there. If Jesus gives you two warnings about something, you've got to pay attention to that. Take care, be on guard. It's literally this. Picture yourself. You've just gone on a nice leisurely walk in a beautiful field, Southeast Asia. Beautiful day, you're seeing all the rice fields and all these different things, and you're just traveling along, you're walking along, you get about halfway through the field, and suddenly somebody yells, Stop! That's a minefield! We haven't cleared it yet from the Vietnam War! Turn around and walk out the exact same way you just walked in. How would you walk? Be very careful, right? You would be looking for your footprints, right? You, you would be really caught. That's what he's talking about. That's the picture here. When he says, take care, be on your guard, he's saying, watch your heart. Watch your heart against all covetousness. Be careful. We are greedy consumerists, he's saying. Be careful. This is such a deceptive thing. It might appear like a right request. The guy's losing his money, but the reality of what's going on in his heart is that he's trusting in this world. He's living for this world. He's finding his joy in this world. He's finding his purpose in this world. So be careful. Be on your guard against all of it. Why? Your life is not made up of this world. Your life's not made up of it. Your life is not bound by this. This is not the pursuit of your life. This is not the definition of your life. You have to recognize that that is a a, a view of this world only in light of this moment. It misses the eternal perspective. So now, he's going to explain it. He'll illustrate it with a story. Notice the parable, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Okay, now there's the parable. First thing I want you to notice in the parable is that the land produced. Just notice that in the story. The land produced. I think that's an important observation to make because if everybody had the ability to make wealth, we'd all be wealthy. At the end of the day, we are bound to God for everything, right? He's our provider. I'm not my own provider. If you could independently be wealthy, do you think somewhere your flesh would have went after that? Do you think somewhere if you could just snap your fingers and get wealth, you'd do it? You can't get wealth. God's your provider, and He will determine how much you have. So, but the land produced for this guy. The man didn't produce it. The land did it. But what happened to this? He became filled with abundance. Now, what happens in abundance? We, we learn from the book of Deuteronomy what happens when abundance comes. When abundance comes, right? Deuteronomy 6, what happens in Deuteronomy 6? Moses preparing the people to enter into the promised land. As they're getting ready to go, he says, I have a message from God for you. 
God is saying, listen, when you go into the land, do not forget him because you're going to get houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant and, and all this stuff. You're going to get all this stuff. And when you get all that stuff, you're going to feel satisfied. And when you get satisfied, you know what's going to happen? You're going to forget God. He will be nothing to you. You will be the sum total of your possessions. You will live for it. You will find your joy in it. You'll find your pleasure in it. Every day we'll be getting up dreaming about all the ways that you can squeeze everything you can out of this world. That's what you will be living for. In fact, that's what this happened to this guy. Verse 19, what happens? He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Relax. You've arrived. Eat, drink, find your, find your passion, your pleasure in it. Be merry, find your joy. This is where real life comes from. In fact, when I read verse 19, the first thing that came to my mind was something really silly. I thought of an investment commercial that I saw one time. The investment commercial were these two really good-looking 60-somethings. And they were just in great shape. And the guy's out there fly-fishing. And the girl's out there on a, the wife's out there on a bench scrapbooking pictures of her grandchildren. And it's this perfect, serene environment. And they listen to their advisor, their financial advisor, and they got there. They arrived. Now, the reality was, he wasn't like having knee issues and back issues, you know, and, and you know, slightly overweight, you know, and he can't really fly fish because he threw his shoulder out playing with his grandchildren. Right? It wasn't like real life 60-something, right? It was fake life 60-something. No back problems, no knee problems, no, everything's great, you know. They're not fighting out there on the beach like, why are you bringing those pictures out there? They're going to get all wet, you know. It wasn't that kind of stuff going on. <laughs> they were just like all happy. Right? They arrived at the perfect moment. Their investment advisor got them there. I just thought about that. I thought, this is what this guy was. Oh, I'm finding joy in life. I get up every day and I think, where should we go this weekend? What should we do? We have the money. We could just go skiing this weekend. Why don't we go skiing this weekend? Why don't we do this this weekend? You see, this is what I live for. I live for this world. That's my pleasure, it's my joy. God said in Deuteronomy 6, listen, when you get the abundance, don't forget me. Jesus says, take care, be careful. Do you realize how much of a slippery slope wealth is to forgetting God? To living for yourself. That's covetousness. I want my way. Living for me. So this guy stores it up. He finds his security. He finds his pleasure. He finds his joy in this world. He's found it all there. But notice what happens. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool. It's a powerful word. Absolute stupidity. In fact, you could put the word idiot in there. I mean, it's a harsh word. Fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He says, do you realize how foolish this is? The moment your heart starts living for the world, the moment your pleasure, your joy is living for the world, you are a fool, is what he says. 
Now, there's two observations I want to make about this. Here's the first observation I want to make. Money pulls us into the moment and causes us to live for the moment. Money pulls us into the moment and causes us to live for the moment. Notice, when eternity comes calling, this guy has nothing. He's not ready for eternity because all of his thought, all of his dreams, all of his, 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 his vision was all about this life. It was all about this moment. Every moment of his life was, okay, I need to build barns. I need to get this. I need to get that. I need to get that. So I can arrive and I can relax and I can finally have pleasure and I can finally have joy. I've got joy now. I'm going to enjoy this stuff. You only go around once. I'm just going to... It's like that game of life. Remember that game of life? What was the point of that game? Get as much as you can and then you win. It's like, that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly what this guy lived for. But here's what money does. You live in the moment. And when you live in the moment, you lose sight of eternity. It's so true. I can see it happen with people who, who are young and they've got all this passion for serving God. They, they're pouring it all in for the kingdom. And then they get a job and they start getting wealth. And the next thing you know, they're just living for this and that. And this vacation, that vacation. I'm just in the moment, man. I'm just in, and I, for the kingdom of God, sure, when we have time. But right now we're young and we're going to... Right? Jesus says, take care, beware of that. Living for the moment is a fool's errand because when God requires your life, you have nothing to give. Whose will it be? All that stuff you live for is going to go away and be gone. And you'll have nothing. And that stuff doesn't translate into an eternal account. Second observation I want to make. Money also blinds us to the values of the kingdom of God. It blinds us to the values of the kingdom of God. What does abundance do? This guy, when he got blessed by God, he started storing up so that he could live for his own pleasure. He, he moved through the, the chain so that he could get more and more and more and more and more so that he could live more and more for himself, which is the exact opposite of the values of the kingdom of God, right? So possessions, uh, materialism, consumerism, what does it do? It, it, it blinds us to the values of the kingdom because we start living for ourselves. We start saying, I've got to do this. This is what's important to me. I have to, I have to, I have to, right? God's no longer my provider. I'm my own provider, and I have to do this. And I've got a standard I want to live for, so God's not my provider. I'm my provider, and this is my standard. It's not God's purposes in the kingdom. It's, it's my purposes, my vision, right? So all of a sudden, the values of the kingdom are gone. Let me just give you some illustrations. I'll give you four illustrations of this. Here's the world system. Here's a consumeristic system. It says to store up, right? Get more. Build it up. What does God say? God says, give it away. Be generous. What does the world say? The world says power is found in control. You find people who are living in a consumeristic world, they start wanting to control their wealth, they want to start controlling others, control their time, control their situations, control their schedules, control, control, control. God says power is actually found in service. I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to control you and my life and my time and figure out how you serve me best. I'm here to give it to you, even at cost to myself. The world says you're what matters most. You're what matters most. You need you time. Right? You need your moments. 
You work hard. You serve in the man. You need your time. Do what's best for you. God says others are what's most important. Right? They're more important than you. One more. The world says glory comes from exalting self. Right? We build up big empires to ourselves. God says glory comes from humbling self. Do you see what happens? You start living in that consumer. This is why Jesus says, beware, beware, man, because it's going to blind you to the kingdom of God. It'll blind you to the values of the kingdom. And it's a slippery slope, amen? It's a very slippery slope for all of us. For all of us. So what's the answer to this? It's found partially there in verse 21 when he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Here's what he's getting at. He's saying, listen, here's the reality of the situation. This person wants to eat, drink, and be married. Be merry, and, and all of that is just so destructive. But what's going to happen when God comes calling for his soul? He's not going to be ready. See, the issue is being rich towards God at the end of verse 21. It's pursuing we'll just call this the wealth of the kingdom rather than the wealth of the world. Jesus is not a means to an end to have me pour my heart into the wealth of this kingdom and this world. There's many bad teachers out there that would want to get you to think that. Follow the principles and then you can have more wealth in this world. That's not the point. God's our provider. Now, God might give some of us lots of money, but it's irrelevant. God's our provider. Live in this world, not for this world. My focus is to be rich towards God. Now, how are we rich towards God? That is what the rest of this chapter is about. The rest of this chapter now is going to start really teaching us what it means to be rich towards God. But in the interest of, of helping us set the table for that, let me just give you one way. One, 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 one uh, simple picture that Jesus gives. It's found in verse 32 there of of chapter 12. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, if you catch this point, this is the key. There's three things I want you to see there. Because this is really the key to living in a way where we're pursuing the wealth of the kingdom, not the wealth of the world. We can be rich towards God rather than rich towards man. The first thing that we see in verse 32 there is to surrender your fear of this world. When this man came to Jesus, he said, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. And why is he saying this? Probably the implication is, I'll have nothing. Well, that's a fearful thing, is it not? Isn't it scary to lose everything? It's really scary. We're so scared of losing everything that we become afraid of that. And we start living for the world rather than in the world. And so he says, listen, fear not, little flock. Do not be afraid. Why? Second thing we can learn. Remember who your father is. Notice he says, fear not, little little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I want you to notice that he says it's your Father's good pleasure. 
And I want you to remember that he's saying, listen, the God of the universe, the one who owns it all, the one who controls it all, the one who's in charge of it all, he's your father. Do not forget that. This man wanted his money. His earthly father left it to his brother. His brother won't distribute it to him. But it isn't that father's money he should be worried or, or consumed with. Remember his earthly father, who's his provider. That's the Father who will care for you. And we're going to see in there, He cares. He cares deeply. The fact that this guy was bent out of shape, that he was losing his earthly possessions, means he had no view of God. God was not in the equation. All that was in the equation was his earthly resources. What he was losing on earth. As if God suddenly went, oh no, his brother won't give him the money. What am I going to do? We're stuck. Like God is really can't provide for this guy? See, he had no view. Remember, and remember who your father is, man. He's the father of the kingdom of God. Which leads to the third thing. Live for his kingdom. He's going to distribute the kingdom to you. He's going to give you more than earthly goods. He's going to give you the hope and the peace and the purpose and the joy and the security of knowing when you translate from this life to the next, you are in eternal state with him for all, for all eternity. You've got more waiting for you in an inheritance than anything you could ever gather up on this earth. And all that you gather up on this earth is going to be given away to someone else in the end anyways. So live for His kingdom. See, here's the point. Live in the world, not for the world. We live in the world, not for the world. So when I work and God provides money, God, you're my provider. I save money, right? I've put away money. But my faith isn't in my bank account. My faith isn't in my paycheck. My faith isn't in this church to care for me. My faith is in the fact God will provide. I've made it this far. And he's not ever said, oh, I'm leaving less than out. God will provide. What he's doing, though, is he is going to align me to his purposes. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said this about this text. The way that you know if you're rich towards God is that nothing but God is precious to you. Isn't that a great quote? The way you know if you're rich towards God is that nothing but God is precious to you. So if I told you you were losing everything on earth, whatever it is that you feared losing the most on earth is precious to you. And this is what he's saying. Live for the kingdom. Again, we're not talking about being poor stewards. The Bible's very clear. We're good stewards for the glory of God. I'm a good steward of what He provided. But God's my provider. So, let's wrap this up. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? The question comes down to, what are you living for, right? Am I living in this world or for this world? And Jesus is not a means to an end to help me live for the world. Jesus is not a means to an end to help me live for this world. Oftentimes, He withholds answering the prayer request that would cause us to love this world more. And so He's gracious in that. Because He's planning for our eternity even when we're not. Even when we're not. So let me just give you four, what I want to call four challenging questions. 
And these are very challenging questions, and, and they challenge me. They challenge all of us. They're intended to be challenging. And I want to put a challenge out to, to you that you would actually answer these questions. That you would take the time to really search your heart and let you and the Spirit of God do some work to, to really drill down into these questions. But let me give you four of them. First question is this. What do I live for? It's the first question. It's a simple one. The way you know that is just what consumes your thought and your mind Monday through Friday, Monday through Monday, throughout the week. What are the dreams? What are the visions? What are the plans? And if they all revolve this kingdom and this kingdom only, kingdom of earth, you might not be living for the right thing. You might be living for the world and not in the world. So take stock about your thought life, your heart life. Second question, am I consumed by material goods? How do you know if you're consumed by material goods? Because you find your joy and your happiness and your security in them. Some people have shopping addictions. Things get down and they go out to the store and they buy something and that buying something makes them feel better. See, that's, that, that's a consumer mindset. That's living for the world, not in the world. The question is, am I consumed by this? Thirdly, do I see Jesus as the key to material success? Do I see the Bible as a way of making money in this world? You see that? That's wrong. The Bible is what's going to align me to God's kingdom and God's purposes. God will provide, and He might provide somebody with a lot of money, but the end result isn't to get a lot of money. The end result is to live for His kingdom and to be faithful with whatever He provides you, whether you're poor and destitute or whether you're rich. It's His kingdom that matters. Fourth question. If you're married, ask your spouse this question. What defines our family? God's kingdom or our pleasure? God's kingdom or our pleasure? See, we're meant to live in this world, but not for this world. And so I would just challenge you to have some good, hard, honest conversations with yourself and with your family because I believe the key that Jesus is telling disciples is to be on guard, be careful. This is, this is very, very intense. Slippery slope. Now next week, Lord willing, we'll unpack more of what it means to be rich towards God and we'll see what this really is and, and how our heart is anchored in all the great things God's blessed us with. But before we do that, let's just make sure that we've really asked ourselves the hard questions so we're ready to receive His Word next week. Would you bow your head with me? As I pray, I would ask you just to pray in your own heart to do some soul searching so that you could be freed from the bondage of living in this world and to begin to start living for the kingdom of God. Father, we come before you now as people who are consumeristic, as people who do live for this world. In my own heart, this text has challenged my own love of this world and the things that are precious to me. And Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would just continue to, to do its work, not to condemn us, but to conform us to the image of Jesus that we might live for Your kingdom and not the kingdom of this world. Lord, may we live in this world as good stewards of it, as faithful stewards of it, using the resources that You've provided for Your glory. But Lord, help us not to cross that line and start living for this world. 
as Your Spirit reveals areas where we're just living in the moment, living for ourselves, living for our own pleasure, living for our own fun. Lord, may we not press against that. May we not resist that. But Lord, show us the joy of what it is to be set free from the bounds of consumerism. And to be aligned to Your purposes and to find the purpose for which You created us. And how we were uniquely designed to bring glory to You. Lord, as we go through this, prepare our hearts to hear what Jesus has to say so that we might live in the joy in which You've called us to live. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.